Our main reading this morning is going to come from Genesis chapter 2 in the Old Testament as well as a New Testament passage in Romans chapter 5. You'll find both of those main readings in the bulletin, but you'll want to have the Bible at your hand because we'll look at a number of passages this morning. Now, last week, we looked especially at one question, the question of all deaths. Why was Jesus crucified? Now, this week, we turn to something even more fundamental than that, which is, why did he have to die, period? And this is the question at the heart of Lord's Day 16, the next segment in the Heidelberg Catechism, as we work through some of the key ideas, the ideas recognized for centuries and centuries by Christians to be at the heart of our Christian faith. Now, Genesis chapter 2 deals specifically with the conditions by which sin and death become a part of life as we know it. Romans chapter 5 has to do with the deliverance from death. So let's hear together with the word of the Lord, hear together the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 15 in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then Romans chapter 15, or rather Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. But the free gift, speaking of salvation, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Test the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, for all that a pastor may prepare and a people prepare to receive your word, it is you who grant increase of life. You are the Lord of life. And we ask that this morning you would be pleased in mercy to bring forth fruit through the preaching of the word, through our hearing, that you would grant us diligent listening, that you would open our hearts to believe and to respond as you desire and everything that you would be honored for. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. There are certain questions which are virtually inevitable in life, questions which from a pretty early age people start asking, and one of them, of course, is the question, why do people die? Sometimes this comes up for a child because of things that they're reading, or maybe it's a pet that passes away, or maybe it has to do with hearing of a relative or some person in the community. As much as we might want to avoid that subject, it is one of the fundamental questions of human experience, of understanding the world that we live in, and it's certainly one of the core questions of the entire scriptures. And God, in his mercy, has seen fit not to leave us utterly in the dark on that question. He wants you to have some understanding and some assurance as we wrestle with death. Now, I think many of us, perhaps all of us, are tempted when asked, especially by children, why do people die, to respond in this way, to say something from the hip like, it's, it's just a, a natural part of this world. It's just how the world is. It's true that it is how the world is, but the Bible presents an altogether different picture. That's not how it was, per se, how it had to be. Rather, death is treated in the scriptures as an intrusion upon human experience, an intrusion upon human nature as God desires and designed it to be. And for that reason, nothing less than an intervention of God himself in our nature was necessary, that God should undergo death in our place. This will transform, it must transform, how we relate to our own mortality. There's a sense in which, and I speak particularly to the younger ones here, there's a sense in which we might hope that our death is far away from us. 70, 80, 90 years away, perhaps, which feels far when you're young. On the other hand, death is something we're experiencing every day, this principle of mortality, of winding down, and of being in relative danger of perishing. And so it's essential that we grasp how death has been transformed in and through Christ's death. The way that one of the great English theologians, John Owen, put it, was that there is a death of death in the death of Christ. For the Christian, this changes everything, and it should fundamentally change the way that we grieve and the way that we live in comparison to the world. And so this morning, we're going to consider something of the necessity and the meaning of death relative to human beings in general and to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we're going to look at these passages under two, or rather three main headings. First, we'll focus on the necessity of human death then the necessity of Jesus' death, and then by way of conclusion, we'll think about how his death transforms its meaning for us. Now look with me at Genesis chapter 2. I trust you still have that available to you. Genesis chapter 2 at verse 16. As we consider the necessity of human death, why is it necessary for humans to die? Now according to scripture, death was not always necessary, and children, you must grasp that. The Bible does not teach that human death was always a guaranteed end of human life. Rather, verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God saw fit to form a human being made in his image and to place him in a condition where he might express faithfulness to God's covenant with him, his arrangement, his promise, and in that way show obedience and love to the Lord. And so death was conditioned for Adam. And by all account in scripture, which we ought not to doubt, Adam, for that reason, would never have been subjected to death. How that is exactly how that works, I don't claim to fully grasp any more than I understand how we'll have a resurrection body and never die. But God has power to create things and to sustain them. Even in the condition of the world as we know it, that should not trouble us. I wonder how many here, how many of the children are aware of what is the oldest known plant that we, at least at this point, have discovered. The bristlecone pine, the oldest tree. There are specimens still living that are over 4,500 years old. And so to think of human beings living well past 120 years seems just unthinkable, but God created life and he can sustain life. When we think of Adam and Eve before their fall into sin, we should, I think, not think of them like supermen whom if you were to shoot a gun at them, the bullet would just bounce off. I am not sure. Rather, we should understand that God here covenanted to preserve and to protect them. Nothing could harm them. They were preserved by his perfect hand, and they would have gone on that way for as long as the Lord willed. But then sin enters in, and God punishes sin with death. Now think to some of the penalties, some of the discipline that we have experienced in life, or maybe that we've inflicted. Often is it not the case that when human beings inflict discipline, it's somewhat arbitrary. That is, it's not always perfectly clear that it's exactly equal to the thing that we're punishing. Maybe there's an elementary school teacher, and the class begins to act up, and maybe there's one kind of ringleader of the nonsense going on, and the teacher needs to deal with it. And the teacher doesn't pull out a, a chart that shows, you know, if this is the infraction, this is the exact response. Often they make a judgment in the moment. And that may be detention, that may be writing something repetitive. There's a kind of arbitrariness where they try to be fair, but it's not always perfect justice. By contrast to that, the Bible presents that there was nothing arbitrary in the sentence, the penalty of death upon human beings for sin. It is the exact, appropriate response for sin. Our catechism captures that in these words from question and answer 40. It says, God's justice and truth require it. His justice and his truth require it. But the Bible speaks even more starkly in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. God is not an unjust boss. He doesn't shortchange anyone and gives exactly what is deserved. You may not understand, you may disagree with death being the penalty for sin. But your quibble there is with the Lord who says the wages of sin is death. And so we have to reconcile ourselves to that. We have to come under that and say, 
Lord, if this is what is earned by sin, then sin must be much worse than I thought. But to understand this, I think first we have to ask, what is death, according to the Bible? And I wonder if I were to ask any of the children here, or maybe some of the high schoolers, what is death? What your answer would be. What is your death? Knowing that every single one of us, unless Christ should return sooner than we might expect, unless he should, we will pass through death. But what is it? According to the Bible, it is more than the cessation, the ceasing of biological functions. Often we think of death that way, and that's certainly how our society encourages us to think of it. The end of biological functions and a kind of turning off of consciousness. For the Christian, death is also more than the separation of body and soul. That's an aspect, a phase of death. But think about this for a moment. When the Bible describes the final estate, the final condition of those who stand condemned for sin... Does it describe them as disembodied souls? No. Rather, the Bible presents that there will be a general resurrection of the living and the dead. That those who will stand outside of the Lord's favor forever receive their own resurrection kind of body. This is stated explicitly in many places in the Bible. Just as a sampling, here together with me a few of them. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Then those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or Revelation 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The context there is speaking of the general resurrection in Revelation 20 and 21. And then finally, Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Fear him that is God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What does that mean? That means that we should not think of death as essentially the ceasing of biological functions or a silencing of consciousness, of awareness. Death in the final estate involves a body and consciousness. This is the testimony of Scripture. It gives me no pleasure in one sense. I don't delight in declaring these things in a perverse fashion. Any more than a doctor delights to say, this is the condition. It must be dealt with. Death, as it's presented in the Bible, in the final condition, is a breaking apart of the order that God designed for humans to be in, to enjoy fellowship with him. Its polar opposite is everlasting life. And that means everlasting life in the same corresponding way. Everlasting life is so much more than just breathing forever. Life in its true and final sense is the richest, fullest infusing of the ability to know, to perceive, to rejoice in the attributes and the works of God and his people and his creation. 
we've only had, we're more dead than alive. You have to appreciate that. At this stage, there's a beginning of life for the Christian. But if you think that we are mostly alive, that, you know, coming into glory adds 1% to the whole experience, how backwards and where would the joy of the gospel be? But by contrast, death is the penalty for sin. And when you think of death as this disordered state, a rending of life as God meant it, it becomes more apparent why that was the appropriate penalty. When any creature seeks its life outside of the Lord of life, all that they can have is death. If you do not have the Lord, you have death because he is life. This is what we see, for instance, in John chapter 1 and 3. These are very brief passages. I don't ask you to turn there. But listen carefully. Jesus is speaking to a teacher named Nicodemus in John 3. But before that, the Apostle John says, All things were made through, speaking of Jesus, made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of man. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But then in John chapter 3, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Is this not our experience of wrestling with our sinful nature every day? Of coming back to an awareness, I am loving that which is dark, And I cannot be delighting in the Lord at the same time. I can't take pleasure in the light while I cower and hide in the shameful things of the dark. But God, by his spirit, calls his people out of that, back into the light every day. And we are a people who, overall, do walk in the light. But those who would choose to walk in darkness remain in death. They have no other alternative. How then can a person escape this penalty, this necessary penalty? The only way would be to satisfy the debt. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And none of us can do that by our own effort. And your neighbors have to be informed of that, that they cannot do that. Their default mode. Don't take for granted that because grace has become a familiar concept to you, that it is to the world. It's not. It's not. The world's idea of grace at best is that God gives you a leg up. He rounds the curve. But it's on you, determinatively, to be good enough. Children, that is not what the Bible teaches. Grace is pure grace. He calls us to obedience, but the call comes through a gate of freedom, a free gift, as it says in Romans 5. The debt has to be paid, but it's not one that we can pay. Psalm 49, verse 7 Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. We can't pay for anyone else. We can't pay for ourselves as mere people because we can't even pay off our own debt, let again to pay for somebody else's. The love, the obedience God is worthy of and which he called us to originally in Adam is beyond us. This then explains why Jesus had to die. 
He couldn't just suffer a certain amount, and he couldn't just come and live a good life. The penalty had to be paid. And this brings us to the second idea here, that the only way for us to have salvation is through Christ's death. Which means every time we speak of his death, God help us, and I freely confess, sin works in me, I'm sure it works in you to where it's not always the case, but every time we want, we want to discipline ourselves when we think of Jesus' death, to have a heart of gratitude, to understand that was necessary. Things that are not necessary, we tend not to be nearly so grateful for, right? Anyone ever be in a situation, maybe you come under a large wave, you're not used to being in the ocean, huge wave gets you, rolls you to the bottom. Pretty quickly you're aware how necessary breath is, something you take for granted when you're above the water. You don't even think about it, it just comes right in. You need the breath, and when you get it, there's uh, an almost worshipful, perhaps even worshipful, sense of thankfulness for breath. This is the death of Jesus Christ for us. It is what air is to our lungs, so his death is to our soul. (gasps) He died for me. And nowhere is this better captured than in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. There it's speaking of the night before he's crucified while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's preparing for the most intense period of his suffering. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, And going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and began to pray, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup there speaking of the wrath of God using one of the chief metaphors in the Old Testament prophets where it says, for instance, in the Lord's hand is a cup of wrath which he would make the nations drink down to the very dregs. Jesus says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If there were any other way, that would have been the way. Now, there is a mystery, which we should acknowledge here. Mystery is not a bad word for Christians, provided we use it rightly. Mystery doesn't mean nonsense. It doesn't mean irrational. It means that there are aspects to God's work that transcend our limited knowledge and reason. We don't know all the details of God's working. And when we come to those points, these are points especially for the Christian points of worship. The Trinity is not irrational but it is incomprehensible even so the death of jesus christ there's mystery to it partly because no one of us who is living has fully experienced death and so for us to say oh well we know what it means that jesus died i don't know fully what it means to experience death what do we know according to the scripture all his life but especially in the hours leading up to jesus death on the cross, God exposed his soul to the most intense, hellish sense of the Father's disapproval. A sense of alienation, a sense of utter inward darkness. This is on top of all of the physical suffering. But Jesus' suffering concludes at the end of his time on the cross. He goes not beyond the cross into the grave to suffer further. Remember, he says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so it's in his very physical embodiment that his soul is being subjected to death. Hebrews, or rather Matthew chapter 26, 
Furthermore, in Gethsemane, he says, it says that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. The Bible teaches us that part of what it means for Jesus to be truly God and truly man was that his divinity upheld the human nature to endure things that we cannot comprehend. To truly experience death as God knows death to be. Furthermore, what we know is that it was not for himself, but in our place. Hear these words, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That is, all who are in him, just as All were originally in Adam by nature. He was their representative, and they share a nature like his. So, in Christ, Christ tasted death for you. And that raises the question, is there anything left in the cup? And as we'll see, not in the sense of judgment or condemnation. He has tasted death for all of us. At the outset of the sermon, one of our readings, of course, was in Romans chapter 5. Hear what it says there in verse 18. For as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. When it says one act here, it's summarizing the life of Christ, but particularly his willingness to go up to death. As it says elsewhere, he became obedient unto death. And so Jesus' death was absolutely necessary to deliver us. This is one of the issues with people who would so emphasize other aspects of Jesus' ministry, but never talk about his death. Or just talk about his death in terms of, you know, he he passed on, and he, he dealt with it with courage. But not the for us aspect. This is sometimes described in these terms, substitutionary atonement, that he stood in our place. And this reshapes, it changes everything for how we think about death. In the minutes that we have, I want to conclude with you by thinking through how this changes the way that we and others think about death. In the first place, for anyone who does not yet trust in Christ alone. And in a group of this size, it grieves me to think there must certainly be those people. I would like there not to be, and my point is not to raise fear in anyone unnecessarily. What does faith in Christ feel like? It feels like trusting in Christ. So we ought not to constantly ask questions. Is it really real faith? And rather look at the fruits that the Holy Spirit works in us. And look to the confirmation of the church around us. Who's able often to better identify those fruits. That's one of the reasons why discipline is not something we inflict on ourselves. But something the church, according to Christ's order, is given to exercise. But for those who do not believe in Christ, what does his death signify? It signifies the absolute certainty of the second death. Everyone dies the first death, right? Our bodies wear out and we pass on. But the fact that Christ had to come under judgment, even while on the cross... For his people indicates to us there is no escaping final death. There was no way that he could deliver his people apart 
from his death, then there is no way that the unbeliever can be delivered apart from being in Christ. There is a day appointed when God shall judge the world through that man in righteousness, says the book of Romans. And that should both drive those who have not yet trusted in Christ to take up his promise, to enter in, to believe that he is willing. He's already proved his love. What more could he possibly do? He went willingly for all who looked to him. But it should also be a stimulus to us to compassion upon the dying. Historically, this is one of the reasons why Christians have involved themselves in hospice work. Obviously, anyone may pass at any time, but to think often of those who are yet outside Christ, they don't deserve salvation, but the nature of grace is that it goes freely, and if you have been forgiven freely, then this should drive us to an urgent desire to see others come to know him. How does it shape life for those who have trusted in Christ? Well, in the first place, it takes the sting out of death. Hear these words from our catechism. In fact, this is in the Catechism on page 217. You should look, with it, uh, look at it with me. It's in the Thin Forms book on page 217, question and answer 44. Partly why I want you to see this is because for those who are not accustomed to forms, written statements of faith, In our culture, there can be an almost automatic prejudice against them, like they're these dry, dusty documents. Not these ones. Not these ones. The person who thinks that has clearly not read them. Listen to what it says concerning what it means for us to know that Christ descended into death, into the experience of hell for us. Answer 44 says, It assures me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, That Christ, my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. I've spoken with some of you that I know have experienced that. And what great comfort, what great comfort. And children, young ones, prepare before, prepare before you experience such things. Because the enemy will bring them against you to doubt and to fear your death. But rather, to know that Christ has suffered these things means that death for us becomes not an end of life, but an entrance into greater life. Why does the Lord still let the Christian should physically pass away? For us, it's a deliverance from this state of bodily decay, corruption. Question answer 42 says, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and entering into eternal life. This day you shall be with me in paradise. May we comfort one another with that. We've had the opportunity in the last five years, and we'll have it again, to be with some of those who are on the edge, very obviously on the edge of death. And we need to be prepared to minister that to them, and they need to be prepared to minister that to us. Often their testimony is worth more to us in those hours than vice versa. But for them to do that means that you need to prepare to be that person. 
who can speak to your family when you are facing your death and tell them, I am not afraid of death. I don't like pain, but I'm not afraid of death. And that means knowing where we stand in the Lord. Let's close then with the words of Psalm 118. We'll close with these words and then pray. Hear together with me the words of Psalm 118, which speaks very much to this transformation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Hebrews tells us that psalm was fulfilled in Christ, himself the cornerstone of the temple, himself the gate of righteousness which we enter through faith. If your faith is in him, brother, sister, death is transformed. May it be for us a dying to sin and an entrance into life. Let's ask him to help us in that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not shied away from necessary discipline of our souls. Even as Psalm 118 says, the Lord has disciplined me severely. Sometimes you lay on us a great dread of death. Sometimes you lay on us great affliction in body in order that we might learn to hold fast to Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior Jesus that he was willing to undergo for us as no one else ever has the full weight of your judgment, such that he could say, it is finished. We pray, Father, that you would help us often to look into his cup and to see that there is no more wrath for us. It has been transformed into a cup of rejoicing. From time to time as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would call that to mind, that we would rejoice, that for us it is a cup of salvation. In all these things, we pray that you would make us a light to a dying world that we would be a source of hope and through these words impart life. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen.